Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This morning I'm speaking with Penny Houston, who's not the author of the book, but does have her name on the front cover. What did you do to deserve that, Penny? I've been a fan of Patrick Modiano since I was a university student and got one of the French government scholarships, which no longer exists, for literature to go and study for... Well, I stayed there for, you know, four years. Um, And I met and interviewed Patrick Modiano, who was... um, beginning to get known in France but um, didn't have an international reputation at all and really when he won the Nobel Prize last year I I mean that sort of galvanized me really to to go to Gallimard his publisher and say you know could we buy some rights and of course you know lots of publishers were were diving on but I did you know play that card that I you know but you've also written a paper about him Um, yes with with, with Colin Nettlebeck who then became uh, professor of French at Melbourne Uni Uh, we wrote back then it was published in 1986 a a book about um, well his works up until that time and of course I mean he's written over 30 books so um, I guess a bit of an expert in that sense, but not... uh, Pretty good. (laughs) Yes. French and knowing the author. So let's find out a little bit about Patrick Modenio. You mentioned that he uh, won the Nobel Prize Mm. back in 2014. Mm -hmm. What type of book does he write? Well, well, we're going to talk about this one later. A lot of people say, and he um, has admitted it, I mean, he's a very, very shy person um, hardly ever does any interviews but he has said and, and people say he, he always writes the same book which can be said about many yes. writers and in his case uh, particularly they're pretty much all focused on a, a quest for identity with more or less um, in the different books relating back to the occupation in France and the fact that I mean you know, the French talk about autofiction and um, there, there are there are various autobiographical connections for him because I, I think he would admit that you know writing has managed allowed him to sort of deal with the fact that his father, who was um, Jewish, and his mother uh, did have connections to the collaboration with the Germans, and and there's a lot of sort of guilt and trying to work out who he is in relation to these strange people who who neglected him, who sent him off to live with strange people. I mean, he was born in 1945. He had a miserable childhood, but it's been a wonderful source for his writing. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. So then how, you said he published about 30 books. How come Little Jewel came your way? Because I chose it of the books that remained untranslated into English. Ah. I mean, some have been. Um, the one that won the, the Prix Goncourt, a missing person. Um, there's been dribbles of, of things, but which have barely, barely surfaced in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they should because you brought this one out. Yes, and, and the accompanying one, Paris Nocturne, which has been translated by a young translator, Phoebe Weston-Evans, um, who's British. She's just moved to Australia and she's doing a, a PhD on Modiano at Melbourne Uni. So, so I decided 
because the person who runs the rights department in Gellima, you know, I was, wasn't sure whether I'd be able to get any, so I thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to bid for one. two and <laughs> maybe we'll get one. But um, And Phoebe had already begun a sample for some work at university on Paris Nocturne. So, so um, ah, yeah, and yeah, it's so been published by Yale. So she had a uh, – we yeah, that's been sold to Yale. Little Jewel has a French narrator telling the story. Does um, Patrick – oh, not a French, a woman, a yes. female narrator. I'm sorry, of course mm. she's French. <laughs> female narrator. Does he often use female narrators? No, no. Um, he did the book before this, uh, Dora Bruder, who is a, a, a real Jewish person. That was the only other one where there's a female um, protagonist. And uh, this is quite exceptional. Um and very, very interesting. I mean, most of his books have been a, a young male narrator and uh, searching for a father, which which is the case for Modiano. And um, he did sort of sever ties with his with his father. Um, his mother actually only just died in in France. There was a little notice in the paper just a few months ago. So very um. interesting. She was an she's a was a Flemish actress, but he, it is trying to work out who his mother was, and and it, it's sort of like he doesn't have a proper well, she doesn't have a proper memory, Therese, in here. So she, it's it's like the writing is to create a sort of a, a, oh. the memory fiction is is it's very hard. Thinking. Well, the first line it, it must have been twelve years since anyone had called me little jewel. Who had called her that? Her mother. Yeah. What did she know about her mother? She thought her mother was dead and uh, had died in Morocco. So when she sees at the age of 19 this woman in the metro, uh, and the metro is a is a very important place for, oh. for Modiano, lots of things happen in the metro and it's his connections across Paris, which is this, you know, geographical sort of locus for him. But uh, he sees this woman and... Uh, Actually, she sees the woman and actually believes that the you know the woman is is her mother and and so it's a kind of it's a quest. She follows her back to its seedy apartment and will I you know will I dare to go and knock on the door and um, but this woman was an actress, a dancer. We can still see as she as she's following this woman down the corridor that she has a a dancer's step, but she's uh, she's aged of course. But then it's it's flooded with sort of negative memories about this woman who abandoned her uh, and treated her really awfully. A, a quote from the book. I was certain it was her because she recognised her mouth with a bitter grimace. Mm. And I thought, oh, dear, dear, dear. And so, as you say, this female, Therese, our female narrator, pierces together all the memories and she, she starts to voice her childhood fears to two new friends and but the the one story that really got to me was how the one thing she loved in life was this dog mm. that she was allowed to keep and the mother took it out one day lost it in the park came home and said it's lost mm. and the child's fear was my mother's going to take me out into the park and lose me mm. Well, that's that's what happened because the child got sent away to these strange, weird actors, friends in in, in the country, and um, she she had no idea where she was or who these people were or where her mother was, and and I mean I think there's a lot in the book. Um, she said, you know, my mother was no more able to look after a dog than a child, and yeah. and the dog is also. Uh, I think sort of symbolic of the of the brother. Um, Patrick had a younger brother, Rudy, who died, and that was absolutely traumatic for him. Um, but it is always about loss, and oh. uh, and the mother wears yellow, and um, there's this. I, I, 
identification is uh, with being Jewish. So there's oh, a, with the yellow star. Yeah, the yellow star, and there's a there's images of her in a, a in a circus with the yellow harness and um, all sorts of connections that you can read into the book about um, taking on almost paying dues really for what happened to the Jews from the French because I mean he was the first writer which is why I became interested in him and the first writer who actually took on in 1967 this book he published called La Place de l'Etoile which you know La Place de l'Etoile in Paris is a place but also the Jewish star and he said you know through his novels well France actually was pretty guilty during the war and, and perhaps you know killed even more Jews than the Germans killed and I mean that's one of the reasons perhaps that it didn't, it didn't become as popular as it might have been and it was this movement in literature in France called le, you know le rétro going back to this and um, you know as the Germans did but perhaps a bit more efficiently than the French have done to admit and it took them a long time to talk about what happened in the collaboration in France. Well, I'd say with all of this writing and all of these feelings and everything, he's prob- a lot of his other books may be bigger than this. Are they? No, they're all they're all they're short. Really, mm. because um, we're talking today about Little Jewel, and it's just over 150 pages, mm. more a novella. But there's it's packed with oh. stuff. No, his writing is sublime. I mean, he has a very clear. Um, I mean, people always use the word sort of limpid about it, but it's uh, it's it's. It's full of wonderful resonances and a really beautiful style of writing. Well, through the book we only get uh, the first name of one of the characters, Therese. Uh, There's another character who says, I don't have a first name. And he also has a confused identity. Moreau Badmev. Yes. What does he do for a living? Well, he's a translator. Ah. (laughs) Very interesting. Uh, I mean, another person I think that is an identification for Modiano of translating the weird languages from the past from different places into French and he has to listen very carefully late at night to strange yes. you know waves coming through the radio just <laughs> just like <laughs> wearing headphones well this character knows 22 languages mm. but he's he's learning Persian of the plains and he, he this is a quote from the book it's a pleasant language to listen to. You could hear the rustle of wind in the grasses and the murmur of waterfalls. Well, to be honest, when I hear French, it sounds a little bit like that to me. And uh, I've loved all the French that's been in the book and coming out. But what are the problems of you being a translator to get that French feel into English? Well, I do, I mean, some things I didn't translate and obviously, you know, place names, and, and but you want to keep some of the resonance of the original language. But um, I, uh, one of the things that I think is, it was tricky was the tenses um, because he's constantly moving between different different parts of the past and and also the present of the narrator and the author and I mean it's this moving between uh, which uh, I found it challenging but I think I found the solutions. <laughs> Two bits, one, the first one quote from the book. I noticed she was wearing those knitted slipper socks called panchos, which accentuated her dancer's gait. Panchos? Well, they're like Like a a Spanish type of slipper. Okay. The other one. Therese, the only physical souvenir she had of her mother, she kept in this biscuit tin. So, on the lid, there was a torn sticker on which she could still read Levef Util." 
one has to beware of so-called witnesses. And I thought, oh, that's a clue to something, but I don't know what that French means. Le Ferruti, I mean, it's a, it's a brand, but you, it's, it's not about that particular name. It is about, you know, how much can I trust any form of evidence about the past. I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, photographs, um, you know, the portrait of the mother that he that she'd always looked at and she only realised that actually the, the mother wasn't really looking at her as she'd always imagined. I mean, it's this realisation the mother, like the woman in the metro, just looks straight through her. Mm. And that, you know, the, this... What do these things mean? Can I... It's all I've got, but can I really trust these little bits of evidence? Job of a translator, pretty difficult, but oh, very! I love it. It's a a, a puzzle. It's it's terrific. The role the publisher played played in the very first book that Patrick Modiano wrote. It was a friend of his. It was a publisher, a friend of his father's, or something that. Uh, no, uh, Raymond Queneau, who is a very famous French writer, was a friend of Patrick Modiano's mother, and he was, you know, eighteen, nineteen, and she introduced him to uh, Raymond Queneau, who was one of the readers at Gallimard. Gallimard's got a, um, you know, lots of the famous authors are readers for the publishing company, and he um, read uh, Patrick's first manuscript, La Place de l'Étoile, which is this sort of hysterical book about um, Jewish identity. Uh, Identity uh, and the war, and uh, and that's how he got. I mean, it was I think he was twenty two or something when he was published. So, uh-huh. uh, and your publishing history, mm, you've got a lineage to a publisher too. <laughs> text. Oh, right. Yes, 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 yes. No, well, text. Actually, we we pride ourselves on publishing a lot of uh, books in translation. Um, there's a, a website in America called Three Percent, which um, is is a way of saying, look, you know, what a lamentable percentage of books published in in America that are from other languages. And and I did the calculation recently that text is up twelve, thirteen percent of our books Gee. are. I mean, next week we're publishing a wonderful our first Indonesian writer, Ike Kuniawan, who's coming to the Melbourne Writers Festival. Beauty is a wound, and we'll be speaking with her next week. Him. Him. Yes. Oh, oh, right. There you go. (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful writer. Um, Read the novel. It's fantastic. But we're doing uh, an Israeli uh, writer's uh, novel near near Baram next year and um, some German crime novels, The Trap, Melanie Rabe. (sighs) So from what's inside the book to what's outside the book. And I want to talk about the cover art on both of these books that are published by text. And don't they go well together? They look fantastic. And they're by a very talented uh, text we like to call him a genius, really, <laughs> Mr. Chong. Well, yes, and Mr. Chong has actually yeah, got Chong. a gig in the coming up uh, Melbourne Writers Festival. He's he and he is speaking with David Pearson, who's the cover artist for Penguin, and it will be quite a, se- a session. Because well, I hope they have some so slides. Many people, so many people, oh, slides, look, at, old fashioned of me. <laughs> <laughs> look at uh, the covers of books and think that's pretty important. It's how they remember a book, you know, sort of visually as well as what's written inside it. Well, I, I love the fact that he's echoed a little bit of the classical format of the of the French novels. Oh, it's pretty we're not here on television and, because but, but, but getting that little bit of the French cafe chairs and uh, oh, yes. everything. Oh, yes, clever, clever, very no, clever. Wonderful. When you've read the book, it actually makes more sense too. 
Well, I've been speaking with Penny Houston, who's translated Patrick Modiano, but she says it's so much nicer than I do. Um, published by text and available for $27.99. Well, speaking of the Melbourne Writers oh, Festival, yes, my guest is Lisa Dempster. The Melbourne Writers Festival is on again, and Lisa Dempster is here for the third time, I think it is, to fill us in on the details. So, Lisa, welcome back. Thank you. It starts today. I know, it's very exciting, isn't it? I love opening day of the festival. Well, thank you for taking the time out, especially since it's such a busy day for you. Highlights, what what struck your attention as the main highlights or is shaping up to be the main Where do we start? I mean, tonight's obviously going to be a massive night in Melbourne. We have Louis de Berniers, who's the author of Captain Crowley's Mandolin, opening the festival and Uh, reflecting on his own career as a writer and how he went from writing literally the world's best-selling novel, not, not literally, but one of the world's best-selling novels, uh, right through to Red Dog and his latest novel, The Dust That Falls From Dreams, as well. How do you get to choose somebody like that? How do you attract somebody like that to the Melbourne Writers' Festival? Well, that's part of my job, <laughs> and not to give away any secrets, but one of the things that really excited me at the end of last year was seeing that Louis Debonaires had a new novel coming out. Um, it was historical romance, very much in the style of his Captain Crowley's Mandolin, which is a novel that really touched me when I was very young. Uh, and actually, I read it on the Greek islands, and you know, it was very romantic and just one of those amazing sort of life changing moments for me. And so, when I saw he had a new book coming out in July, and of course, the festival, you know, opens today for the last two weeks of August, I thought. That's it. I have to get him. But and is it a case of trying to find and coordinate things like that so there is an impetus or a motivation for an author to come? Or how do you That's do right. it? That's right. So, I mean, my motivation for inviting Louis was obvious. We had a lot of help from his publisher, which is Random House. They were also keen to see him in Australia. So we made a joint approach. And he's had some great experiences in Australia before. You know, he wrote Red Dog, which is set in the Aussie outback. And he was delighted to accept our invitation. So it all came together wonderfully. All right, so that's one author. One. <laughs> how, how many authors have you got coming? Or is that a ridiculous question? It is. It is ridiculous only because there are so many. We do have, uh, I think, 540 or 550 authors in the festival this year, of which I think 50 or 60 are coming from overseas, 100 from other parts of Australia, and the rest are our amazing local Victorian talent. So in terms of thinking about them as a group, it is a very big group to think about and classify as one. (laughs) For fear of offending some of those 540, uh, can you name a couple that might be of interest to uh, Melbourneites? Absolutely. I mean, Sophie Laguna, who just won the Miles Franklin Award, of course, is going to be appearing in the festival, which is fantastic. Uh, A novelist that I'm really excited to see who's not Australian, um, she's American, is Saray Walker. She's written an amazing sort of feminist manifesto for women. It's very much sort of an Alice in Wonderland, but instead of going into, you know, quote-unquote Wonderland, uh, the protagonist's eyes are open to the patriarchy. So it's a very contemporary, amazing uh, novel, and I'm really excited to be interviewing Sarai while she's on the ground in Australia. So I have to put in a plug for that because I think she's going to be extraordinary. You've got people like Naomi Klein, Mm -hmm. who's not just a feminist, but uh, has been involved in looking at other social issues in America and around the world. Absolutely. One of the leading voices 
is critiquing capitalism and of course her latest book looks at climate change as well and it's fantastic to see her approach to those topics but also to have yeah a leading woman leading those conversations is absolutely inspiring I think. You've got a couple of uh, philosophers there Peter Singer, Raymond Gator. Yeah, uh, Peter Singer, of course, Raymond Gator. We're excited to hear their thoughts. They always have a massive audience in Melbourne, despite being <laughs> locals. We just can't get enough of them, really. One of the very interesting things that Peter Singer agreed to do for us this year, he's doing two events. One is talking about himself as an activist philosopher, which he very much is. But the other is him talking about arts funding. And his platform is that he thinks that people... Private people, donors, shouldn't support the arts and, in fact, we should be supporting other social justice issues like uh, ending poverty and things like that. So we've got him going head-to-head with Robin Archer, who's obviously a a noted arts advocate in Australia and a great festival director herself, uh, and Pippa Dixon. And so there's going to be a big debate on whether the funding the arts is doing any good. Wow. I know, which is one I'm personally very excited about. Of course, working for a not-for-profit arts organisation, we rely very heavily on donations. Donations, but do you get government support for the moment? We also get government support. Um, we have, you know, box office income as well, and we're lucky to have a lot of corporate partnerships that help us run the festival as well. So it's a very sort of a delicate ecosystem of funding, shall we say. But I would have thought that um, the reason for the funding, the reason for the festival, is because uh, things like the Melbourne Writers' Festival, and I don't want to be exclusive to the Melbourne Writers' Festival, provide a cultural backdrop, heritage, uh, focus uh, that is so important, even if you are unemployed or destitute or whatever, a forum for a voice. Yeah, definitely. That's really important to us. So the Melbourne Writers' Festival is celebrating its 30th birthday this year, which is a great milestone, as you say. It's been such played such an important role in shaping Melbourne as a city of literature across that time. Uh, and it's really important for us to maintain our relevance, I guess. Our tagline this year is uh, Melbourne Writers' Festival for everyone who reads. And we are really trying to open up the festival and make sure it is as you say, a platform for discussion and debate that anyone can join in on, whether they like reading novels or newspapers. And to that end, um, over a third of our events are free. So we are actually trying to ensure that if you're a student or unemployed or you know just don't have a lot of disposable income, you can come along and still access so many great events. Well, there's a couple of questions that emerge out of that. I mean, there, <laughs> there's one a session that took my eye in the program. Can books boost your career? <laughs> well, they've certainly boosted mine. As a writers' festival director, um, that's really a fantastic event that we're doing, and that theme of reading and you know how reading can influence or shape your life is a really important theme for us throughout the festival this year. That particular event has you know Jessica Rowe and Peter Doherty, who's you know actually a scientist, and they're going to talk about how great literature has shaped not just them as people, but helped them professionally in a lot of different ways as well. I mean, you would know yourself. Reading good books can lead to critical thinking, inspiration, ideas, imagination, so much. And those qualities are necessary because if you look at life in a fundamentalist sort of way, it's so limiting. Whereas looking at uh, other people's perspectives, all of those sorts of things are necessary for a complete individual and a complete culture. 
Definitely. And even when I sort of zoom back 30 years to when I was a young girl, reading uh, was a way out for me in a lot of ways. You know, it taught me about the world beyond Shepparton, which is where I grew up, which is, you know, a country town in regional Victoria. And through reading, I discovered, you know, Mallory Towers, boarding school life, ideas about other countries and other people. um, And those sort of ideas weren't necessarily present in my physical life, but of course sparked my imagination to find out more you know, on an intellectual and imaginative journey as well. Now, uh, the other question that then I had in mind, how have you differentiated this year's festival from last year's? Is that important to differentiate or how do you go about it? I think the festival changes shape quite naturally year on year, depending on what authors we have and what themes we're exploring. And of course, we draw on those themes, you know, based on what people in Melbourne or Victoria are thinking about, talking about discussing what's in the media, you know, who's writing books, all those kinds of things. Uh, But I guess the major difference this year is that for our 30th birthday, we just decided to go all out. So we've actually got 530 events in the festival, which is a significant increase on the number of events we had last year already. As I said, about 550 authors, over a third of our events for free. We're going into 60 venues this year, which is about double the number of venues that we had last year. So really it was all about let's celebrate. We are a city of literature. We can support an absolutely massive Writers' Festival, so let's do it. So the big difference is we've gone big. Gone gone bigger. But um, differentiating it, but also then part of what you're saying then, it seems to be an organic process. What are the issues then that are being addressed in the community? Which ones have you picked up on in this festival? Well, climate change is a big one. We have a lot of different kinds of climate change events, uh, news, current affairs and media itself, although, you know, media is, of course, sort of a publishing outlet. People are fascinated by what the media is actually doing in Australia at the moment. You know, of course, there's a lot of interesting things happening at the ABC and a variety of different places. And I think um, readers of newspapers, magazines are actually really interested in finding out how the media works and and what drives the media. So that's one of the big topics that we're looking at this year. Um, We're also really just looking at Australian life politically, so not necessarily about politics, but, you know, how are we treating asylum seekers? How are we dealing with the big issues of the day? Who are we as a country? Well, you've got an interesting uh, session there called Arguing Australian Identity. Yes. I find that a fascinating topic, actually. Absolutely. What is Australian identity? Uh, And, you know, that topic really responds to the fact that we're sort of celebrating or commemorating is probably a better word, the centenary of Gallipoli this year. And, you know, so much of the Australian identity came out of this idea of mateship, which was something that came out of that war. But actually, should we be building our identity around that idea or are there other ways for us to assert ourselves as a nation? Well, how accurate is that idea? Because I interviewed, I think it was Peter Rees, on uh, his biography of uh, Bean. And Bean was arguing that the identity actually came before Gallipoli when all of these uh, individuals from around Australia, Western Australia, Queensland, got together in battalions before they left. Mm. So it was the first time that farmers and lawyers and people from around Australia had actually come together, united under the banner of Australia before going off. So it wasn't on the fields of Gallipoli, on the on the, the cliffs of Gallipoli. Uh, it was actually before that. How fascinating. And, of course, that idea has been appropriated by various different politicians and political parties across time as well. And I guess the question is, is that identity still relevant? 
And where are we going and now? Where are we going now? And exactly. I, th- I think the actions of today shape us as a nation. The things we do to other people, and I'll leave it there because I'll get on a, a political hobby horse. <laughs> I will horse. just say that uh, we are bringing Will Self to the festival this year, and he's going to be speaking on that very topic uh, as an outsider, of course, a, a British man looking at Australia, and he has spent a lot of time here. He's going to talk about Australians, how we see ourselves as very democratic and fair and welcoming people, but in reality how we're treating at the moment various different people, whether they're Indigenous people or refugees, asylum seekers, in a variety of different ways, we're actually not being very open and fair and welcoming to those people. So he's going to sort of talk about that conflict in the Australian identity. And you would know that Will Self is a bit of a provocateur, and I know that he absolutely will not hold back in telling us where we're going wrong and right. (laughs) So there are a lot of exciting topics, Mm. uh, people, ideas and issues coming out in this year's Melbourne Writers' Festival. Lisa, thank you for coming in today. I know you're busy. You're going to have to rush off now and get to the festival. Thank you very much indeed. I'm going to the festival on Saturday and I'm looking forward to it. I'm going just going to blob along and just There sing. are so many events yes. worth attending. Just so it's it's the well time worth and just go ahead yeah, and do it. And there are some free events, so it doesn't yep. always cost. But we're gonna to have to get out of here. We are. So it's ruminations coming up next, so thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>